Today on I'll Have You Know. The pandemic and the way that corporate America and the government responded to the pandemic fast forwarded the technology advances of the workplace of the future by probably 10 years. And we did it because we had to. From Katy, Texas to the East Coast for school, then on to the Army, all before going to Rice Business. Rob Godet, a senior VP at NRG Energy, talks about what he's learned about leadership along the way, how he unplugs and finds family time with a demanding job, and he answers the question, will Houston remain the energy capital of the world? Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Christine. I appreciate it. So I want to go back to, um, I know you're a Texan now, but ha have you been a Texan forever? I see you, you went to William & Mary undergrad. Talk a little bit about your, um, I guess, your venture and how you became a Texan. William & Mary kind of throws people off. I'm actually from here. I'm from Houston. Actually, I'm from Katy. My wife is from Katy. Uh, so I was, I was born in uh, St. Joseph's Hospital and then grew up out in Katy, Texas. I ended up going to you know, William & Mary in Virginia. I got a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry at William & Mary. Um, and to go there as a guy from the rice farms of Katy, I went on an uh, ROTC scholarship. Given the scholarship, uh, I had my first job kind of lined up uh, when I got out. And uh, that ended up putting me uh, in the military. Sure, you've seen uh, some changes in Houston from leaving to go to college and then coming back. It's incredible the difference that, you know, I saw just from college through, uh, you know, four years in the military and then back for business school. So that was only a six-year gap. There was a change. And then we moved away, went to Atlanta uh, for 10 years after Rice. And the change that happened after that was, you know, logarithmic uh, comparatively. And so when we moved back from uh, Atlanta to Houston and the company that we were uh, standing up, some of my employees were asking about, you know, where, you know, where should I live? You know, have you heard of this area? And we find it on the map. And I'd be like, well, you know, I'm sure it's a really nice neighborhood. That was a rice field when <laughs> I was there. So I really have no idea what that neighborhood's like. Um, I know it used to have rice and geese in it. Um, so yeah, lots of changes, um, all for the better. The city's, you know, more diverse. It's got more interesting industry. It's uh, very different these days. You mentioned you were in the U.S. Army, a combat engineer officer and a platoon leader. How did that really shape you as a leader and, and what really drew you to the Army to begin with? So, you know, the, the military um, was an opportunity for me to go to William & Mary, right? It helped pay for school. The ability to serve my country and get a college I couldn't afford uh, was a big uh, winner for me. And at the time, that was the transaction, right? Uh, go serve four, four years and get college paid for, which was great. What I didn't know then and what I am so appreciative of now is that four years in the Army as an officer was like a PhD in leadership, not to knock people with PhDs, but it was incredible. And I learned a lot about leadership and dealing with people. I, you know, I had incredible non-commissioned officers. So enlisted personnel with 20 years of experience teaching this kid who's 22, you know, how to lead people, how to be in front of troops, you know, how to get stuff done. And, you know, the gratitude that I have for those NCOs, non-commissioned officers, you know, I couldn't explain in a, in a podcast. It's just, 
it's beyond words uh, what they transferred to me. And I'm so grateful for that opportunity. And, you know, it opened something up uh, that helped me kind of through business school, but is much, uh, much more helpful in my career is, you know, in the army, you don't motivate people with money, right? There's this thing that gets thrown around here that people do what you pay them to do. Um, in the military, that's not true. You don't throw people bonuses to go charge a hill. <laughs> I'd seriously doubt that you'd have any takers. Who'd go for 5,000? But, you know, that's not, that's not how it works. It's, it comes down to leadership and, you know, being on a team and being committed uh, to the soldiers that, that are, you know, to your right and left. And learning that and seeing that, you learn a lot about how people work. And then you uh, set the bar for what leaders should be. I had that as a kind of background story on what I had learned leadership was. And then in the first half of my career, I evaluated my management teams and leadership teams based on that. And then in the second half of my career, I've aspired to be that, right? And, you know, leaders eat last and they make sure that their people are taken care of. Yes. And they make sure that they're empowered to get stuff done. And, you know, if there's a takeaway from uh, from the military, it's that experience. And you can't pay to get that. You can't learn that from a book. I uh, started it as a transaction for time, and it turned out being probably one of the best decisions of my life. You went on to Rice Business. Was that always sort of part of the, the plan from, you know, the time you left Katie initially? Or when did that come about? I thought that... When I was in Katy, when I was in high school, uh, I had aspirations of going and doing something in business. I hadn't even thought about the military. When I got into the military and really started to understand what it was about, um, I, I, I really struggled just to figure out whether or not I wanted to leave. Like I really did enjoy my time in uh, the Army and in the CAV. Um, and so making the decision to leave was actually tougher for me than making the decision to go to Rice. I grew up in Houston. I knew Rice. Uh, I had done some homework on the Jones School. It was up and coming. You know, it's hard to believe that. It was up and coming 20-something years ago. And, it, you know, small classes, great teaching, all of those things. The decision to go to, to Rice was easy. Uh, the tough part for me was just the decision, do I leave the military? And um, President Clinton was uh, the commander-in-chief, and they were shrinking. Uh, the military. And so I started thinking to myself, well, this is going to be, you know, become less and less of a thing. Um, I think I'm going to try to do something else. So I took the GMAT and went to business school. And I graduated in May of 2001, uh, about four months before the world turned upside down. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the military became such a huge and important part uh, of our country and what's going on. And the people who served, who put boots on after me, the people who've done it for the last 20 years, you know, we all kind of owe them a huge uh, debt. Because, uh, you know, my experiences, I got to learn a lot, I got to see a lot, um, don't even pale in comparison to what uh, some of the people that I've hired, you know, over the years, uh, who've been through um, what we've gone through over the last, call it, 20 yeah. years. A different time, yes. Absolutely. You talk about the Jones School being up and coming at the time. And I believe I saw you were involved in the Wright Investment Fund yeah. while you were on campus. And I know that that has grown 
um, to be uh, quite an experience for all of the students. Can you talk about what it was like when you were a part of it and, and why you wanted to be involved? Sure. So the Right Investment Fund at the time was about 25 people, I think. And it was, I think we had less than a million dollars in capital or you know, it wasn't a lot, whatever it was. Um, and we had, you know, the traditional holdings at the time, um, you know, the the big industrials, the Exxon Mobiles of the world. We had a little bit of tech because uh, this was 2000. Um, and we held this stock called Enron. Oh, wow. And it was a performer. It did incredibly well. Uh, the reason why I wanted to go do it is, you know, I always thought that portfolio management, so through my classes, portfolio management seemed really interesting. Uh, getting onto the side of putting money at risk seemed very interesting. The right fund seemed like a useful avenue uh, to go test that out. When I got there, I then realized that I was an analyst. Um, and so I learned two things at the right fund, or two really big things. I made great friends, but two big takeaways. The first one, which was important for the beginning of my career was what it felt like to actually put on a position where you're taking risk. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to buy X and that's putting money at risk. Is it going to go up or down? Right. And um, learning what it's like to make money and more importantly, learning what it's like to lose money uh, was, you know, in a small scale in a, you know, college environment was very helpful. And it actually got me ready or at least kind of laid the, the groundwork uh, for you know, 10 years of trading commodities, right? So, you know, the numbers were bigger and you lost a lot more money and made a lot more money trading natural gas and crude oil. But that first time uh, was was with the right fund. And so it was it was really interesting. And I would imagine for a lot of students who who take part in that program, it's also the first time they're taking on risk for someone else as opposed to maybe their their personal money, which is which is completely different. Yes. Yeah. So the, you know, using somebody else's money and using it for a, a higher cause, right? At the time, um, I didn't have any money anyway, so it was pretty straightforward for me. Uh, <laughs> but for the right fund, you know, if you're making money, you're ultimately driving us to get to a point where we could fund scholarships, where we could make a difference. And if you make a bad decision, will you take that uh, worthy goal and put it backwards? And so having a feeling or a sense of this is a job or this is a, a professional role as opposed to this is gambling and I can lose X. Well, you can't lose any if you're trying to really make something happen for someone else. And so translate you know, what you've learned there at the right fund to then you know, trading on behalf of a company or a fund or whoever. Um, it was a really good experience and it provides, you know, an interesting dynamic. And it also, honestly, it, it lets people figure out rather quickly whether or not it's for them or not. As you look back at your time at Rice and, and when you were leaving, did you always see yourself in the energy sector? So I, I fell in love with the energy sector um, at birth, like every other Houstonian, um, <laughs> right? It's, we're required to love energy. Um, no, it, seriously, I... When I was looking at undergrad, so when I was in high school in Katy in the late 80s, there's no way you'd go anywhere near energy. Um, it just it was too scary. There's too many problems that had occurred over the you know decade before that when I was a kid. Um, and going off to school and in the military, um, I hadn't really even thought about it. The only thing in the news was tech 
Um, so, you know, you either went consulting or you went to a bank or you went into tech. That was kind of, you read the Wall Street Journal, that's where you went. I got to Rice and got to meet and see some of the companies that um, work in the city. And, you know, really someday, you know, I decided someday I want to run or I want to be a part, a big part of an energy company. Uh, and that was probably first semester, first year. And from there on, that was kind of the fix. The only thing I was looking at other than pure energy companies was pure investment banks for energy companies. The uh, independent power producers and merchant energy was just taken off. Uh, so it was a real opportunity and really good timing. What are some of the things you find, I guess, the most satisfying in your current role? So the thing that gets me out of bed every day uh, is the people that I work with. And it has been that for a really long time. Um, you know, building teams, leading teams, helping other people build and lead teams. That's fun, right? That's, that's a dynamic that never stops. It's uh, something that becomes more important every day. Um, that's the great part about it, right? You'll never be the best leader that you can be, um, but you can just keep working at it. And that's the part that makes me most excited to go to work every day. You've worked with quite a breadth of stakeholders in your career, from customers to regulators, elected officials, corporate boards, investors. What kind of advice would you give um, people who are going to follow in your footsteps? And how do you um, form those relationships with the various stakeholders and make it all work together? So I would start with there is not a prioritization of stakeholders that you should use. Um, you know, we went for a, a long period of time where the only stakeholder that mattered was the shareholder. And, you know, thankfully, the you know, corporate America has kind of figured out that that expands uh, beyond uh, that to the communities you're in, your employees, your customers, uh, your local uh, governments. If you think about what the end goal is for your customer and start there, everything else kind of falls into place. You know, this, this message works for shareholders, governments, and customers. My business will thrive where communities thrive. Communities will thrive where my customers thrive. So all I need to do is make sure my customers thrive. And so um, you see, you end up really aligned really quickly. So we stick to how do you make sure that your set of customers or whoever it is that you're working with to solve a problem, how do you help them thrive in what they do? And that's what I get to do every day. Uh, that's worked uh, for 20 years. So I'm going to stick with that probably through the rest of my career. And when you talk about the, the thriving customer, how has the modern energy consumer changed from maybe a decade ago? 20 years ago, we got, ended up with choice, right? So people could choose who provided their energy to them. And here in Houston, you can choose your electricity provider. Uh, in some states, you can choose your gas provider. And in some states, you can choose both. For business customers, that initially led to uh, product development for the customer that fit kind of their needs and was more economic. It managed the risks they wanted. It was better for the customer. So fast forward to your question 10 years later, right? So now we're 2010. You start to see the advent of affordable renewables. You start to see uh, technology and technology prices uh, dropping 
in such a way that it's actually usable. And then uh, you start to see people adopt it. The biggest companies, the big name uh, tech firms that you, anybody would name, um, they start adopting those technologies. That drives the price down even further. And now you fast forward to today, we've got renewables that are more economic than traditional power. We have metering, so the ability to know how a business uses power and to use data analytics to figure out what that means and then ultimately craft a product or a structured deal uh, for a customer that benefits them in exactly the ways they want, right? It reduces their costs or it takes away their risks or it gives them an opportunity uh, to monetize, you know, optionality they have in their own portfolio. Um, all of that stuff you couldn't do 10 years ago. And most of that stuff wouldn't be economic 10 years ago. And, you know, the future from, you know, so if you fast forward another 10, we're going to continue to see innovation along the way. You're going to see products or technology things, right, get cheaper and become more uh, progressive and more developed. And then you're going to see guys like me who work hard to figure out how to commercialize those things and turn them into services or opportunities for our customers to actually benefit from them. You know, a shiny thing doesn't do anything unless you figure out how it helps the business. Right. And so, you know, the last 10 years have been exciting. The next 10 years, I think, are going to be equally exciting. How has COVID uh, changed for the consumer, but also for your role in your company? What are some of the changes you guys have experienced in the last, uh, what, 10 months or so? You know, at the, at the highest level um, around energy, you know, it's obviously driven usage to homes, right? And out of buildings. People are like me are working from home most of the time. And so from a you know, big broad brush perspective, you know, you see a slight uptick in usage out of residences and you see a downdraft in, uh, in commercial and industrial customers. What we've also seen though is manufacturing and uh, production facilities still going, right? Major sectors of the economy are still functioning at the levels that they have before. Places that haven't quite woken up or, or you know, started their same usage are things like schools, right? Schools are still in a uh, weird or uh, remote kind of hybrid uh, situation. So from a demand perspective, it's kind of moved stuff around. What's more interesting, I believe, is that the pandemic and the way that corporate America and the government um, responded to the pandemic fast forwarded uh, you know, the technology advances of the workplace of the future by probably 10 years, right? If not more. And we did it because we had to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like mid-March uh, for here in Houston, that was kind of the line. Everybody went home and businesses still had to function. And I was a guy that had to staff meetings in person. And I was always more comfortable, you know, think back to the military, standing up in front of people and, and having a conversation um, and understanding and empathizing after actually interacting with someone. Well, on March 15th-ish, that went to zero, right? And everybody locked in their house and we all tried to figure out what Zoom was. And, and now we have virtual happy hours and we have daily calls and we have all kinds of meetings um, that are the productivity of the employee base has actually gone up um, you know, people are more connected 
than they've ever been. And in a good way, not in a stare at your phone and wait for the next you know, text message. It's having real conversations where you can actually see the person's face. And you know what that's done is that has helped people like me overcome the concept of you got to be in your seat to be at work uh, and move forward to the workplace of the future, which is, you know, you have an employee in, you know, wherever, Hawaii, uh, doing work that's asynchronous than, you know, the rest of the team. Other people have done that, but what the pandemic did is take what very few companies had embraced and made it mainstream. And I think that's a good thing. I think we'll definitely be looking upon this time, you know, 10 years down the road as, as a major, major turning point. And we probably don't even know all of the implications until we can kind of see it in the rearview mirror. I agree. And, and on so many fronts, right? The, I think the business community has figured out that there are risks out there that we probably didn't think about from a, you know, pandemic perspective. We, everybody thought about pandemics. Nobody thought about shutting down the country uh, for a period of time. Um, and we've all kind of worked through it. And I think that, you know, in general, you know, corporate America has done a, a, a decent job of trying to empower their employees and get things working. I'm very proud of what we've done at NRG. Um, you know, I've, my team, the entire team works remote right now. And we have been since March. And I absolutely miss breaking bread with them. But I've seen their faces. I actually see more people's faces now than I did before. So, you know, I think that as we look forward uh, in time, or you know, look forward to when we're looking back, we're going to learn that we should embrace technology. We're going to learn that it there are ways to supplement kind of remote uh, workplaces and finding talent in places that aren't necessarily uh, in a you know downtown setting. And we're going to find ways to continue to build tools uh, for our employees so that we can do this effectively, right? Thank goodness that things like video conferencing, somebody believed in them 10 years ago so because they invested in them. Because if we didn't, you know, the last eight months of my life or nine months of my life would have been very, very different. Right. We can all wish we would have bought Zoom stock a while back. <laughs> Yes, yes. That's <laughs> my time machine moments to go back and do that. <laughs> You've mentioned renewable energy a, a little bit, but um, there's a tremendous focus on that in our country right now. Where do you see it going from an industry perspective and also at NRG? So uh, renewable energy is going to be a major part of the future, full stop. There's no question about it. It's economic. Um, it makes absolute sense in, in the markets. Um, and so there's really no, there's no re real financial argument against uh, renewables. And then it's also pretty important to understand and think about, you know, what the customer wants. And that goes from, uh, you know, homeowner like me all the way up to the biggest corporations. People want to reduce their carbon footprint. They are, want to do something about climate change. And so decarbonization is a big part of uh you know, the future dynamics around energy. And we as an industry have to figure out how to deliver that. So people want to do business with companies that are doing something about that. And that creates an opportunity for, for me and for NRG in that we worked really hard around building a portfolio of renewables. Um, you know, we do it through 
you know, contracts. We used to do it through building them, but we have ways and we're continuing to push ways to democratize renewable energy. And if you go back five years or 10 years, the way to do a renewable energy purchase was through what we call a PPA, which is a 300 page document, right? Lots of legal fees. And you got to be pretty big from a corporate size uh, to get that done. Well, we created a product two years ago called Renewable Select, which now enables small and mid-sized businesses and even large businesses to get that same capability and inspire that same renewable development, but they do it on a 10-page retail contract. We do all the big hard work, and then we make it user-friendly, for lack of a better word, to allow um, these customers to take advantage of that. And I thought it was going to be an interesting side product, not really the primary way of what we got done. And you know, the demand for that product and the success that we've had around it uh, has been kind of mind-boggling, which just drives me to do more, right? And to figure out other ways to get that done. At NRG, my boss, Mauricio, embraced that multiple years ago, um, has made sustainability a key part of the company from the time he started uh, as the CEO. And, you know, that helps, right? That drives, that empowers people, that that helps uh, our guys align with something they believe in and ultimately helps us align uh, with our customers as we get that done. When I think about the future as an industry, storage is probably the next uh, real interesting component of this clean energy future. Um, storage has the same kind of uh, properties or potential as PV, photovoltaic, solar power, in that prices are coming down dramatically, technology is getting better you know, quickly, um, it's going to be economic soon, and that's going to be a game changer uh, for the industry because now we can take advantage of the, sol- of the wind uh, and the sun-powered you know, energy that doesn't uh, necessarily, isn't necessarily needed. Like that, the most wind in Texas is at night. The lowest electricity usage is at night. So mm-hmm. those things don't match. Give me a good battery, and all of a sudden, it's really helpful. Solar is is better in that, you know, peak solar is that happens to be peak demand, right? Yes. So it kind of works out. It's coincident. Um, the other piece of batteries that uh, is useful for the industry is that it provides some semblance of reliability, right? There's always the argument the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow. What do you do then? Well, if you have a, a you know a portfolio of batteries, you can smooth out those kind of rough edges. Um, and as you continue to transition uh, the industry to a cleaner and cleaner kind of fleet over time. Um, and I happen to live in a city that is the energy capital of the world. And I hope uh, that we continue to work hard to maintain that as we move from the energy environment we have today to you know 2.0. That's a great segue. That was actually my next question. When we talk about energy, it's so broad and some segments have been particularly hit hard uh, by the pandemic. And that was going to be my question. Do you believe that Houston will remain the energy capital of the world? When you think about what makes the energy capital um, what it is, the energy capital, it comes down to just like any good business, people. And for energy, you have to have incredibly smart engineering capability and that same level of expertise and you know borderline genius 
that comes up with the technologies used for downhole tools in you know, fracking operations, that same level of ingenuity and expertise are the guys who are going to figure out the next solar or the next wind or the next battery or the next whatever it takes, right? So you've got this need for incredible engineering capability. Check, Houston's got that, right? The next piece is, is you have to have this uh, commercial mindset, the ability to think about how you take that expertise, how you turn that into business opportunities, business ventures, and ultimately products so that you can go get it out to the world. We've got that too. That's, that's what we do in Houston and we've been doing it for a long time. And then, you know, the last piece is if anybody that wants to be, uh, you know, the leader in an industry or own a space, you got to have a little bit of attitude and a lot of gumption. And we are not short that either. You know, <laughs> we are the energy capital of the world and you're going to have to come and take it from us. I think that's kind of uh, the three kind of components that I, I truly do believe that Houston will lead. We know you're a very busy man in your role, but it's not all work. Uh, I know you find some time for balance and you have a couple of daughters and you talk a little bit about um, your sort of relaxation places, Colorado. Uh, you'll be heading there soon. Um, what, uh, I guess, what are some of your secrets or advice you would give, um, you know, someone with a demanding career in balance and, and how you're able to find Colorado sort of as your getaway spot? Yeah, so... Balance is uh, a tough term. Um, maybe uh, having them coexist is probably the best thing. Yeah, and I'm not going to try to say that I had this ever figured out, but I, I have a 17-year-old daughter and I have a 13-year-old daughter. And pre-pandemic, it started to dawn on me that that 17-year-old's going to leave and she's going to go to college and she's anything like me. She's not going to come home for like 20 years. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, that time with her is, is sacred. And then I saw it again in my 13 year old and, you know, I was watching kind of time with the kids disappear. And once you think that through and you, you understand, or at least have comprehended what that means, all of a sudden some choices have to be made. You have to decide, do you really need to go on that trip or do you really have to go see that customer? Or can one of the three people who actually cover the customer go do that? Um, so making choices there, it's gotten easier now. Um, but uh, it's something that I wish I probably did better a little bit uh, earlier in my career. Now it's, it's all about how do I make sure that I can do my job well, but also ensure that I can help with AP Chem, which is what I will be doing this afternoon, um, <laughs> which is... Very exciting because <laughs> my, my daughter is extremely disappointed in the fact that I am a chemistry major and am not helpful, apparently. <laughs> Things um, have changed probably a little. <laughs> a, a little bit, right? There's, you know, the, the uh, periodic table is written on a stone tablet back when I was studying <laughs> it. But uh, the other piece and the one that's been most helpful for me in, in clearing kind of my mind space is uh, we go to Southwest Colorado. Uh, as much as we possibly can. Um, and so my my happy place is on top of a ski mountain where cell phone service doesn't work and uh, spend a little bit of time pushing the limits um, and, you know, remembering that clean air and catching your breath and being scared every once in a while isn't a bad thing. 
Um, and that helps reset. And honestly, I can tell the difference uh, at work uh, after one of those trips versus uh, before it, to the point that it's important to me that my people uh, go out and do something. Go turn your phone off, please. Go take a break. Stare at the ocean, that works. Go to the top of a mountain, that works. Do something so that you can recharge because people can't be you know, on every day, all day. So as you um, look back on your rice experience and, and how um, it helped you get to where you are today, can you sort of sum up some reflections and, and maybe give some advice to those who um, may want to follow in your footsteps, whether rice business or maybe following in a similar career path that you have taken? The thing I would tell you about business, let's start with business school and then we can talk about career path. I get this question a lot from employees. Um, what did you get when you went to business school? Like, what's what's the point? Why why'd you go? And what'd you learn? And you know, what's the return on that investment? And if you can't answer the question, um, and it makes sense the way I do, then I'm not sure why you would go. The answer is is you get to know people, right? You get to understand technical things, right? I was a chemistry major. I didn't know, you know, the ins and outs of accounting or finance, but it turns out that that stuff's math. I understand math, but that's not what I learned. What I learned was um, how, how industry works, what people do. I've met great friends. I have a, a Rice alum a classmate of mine who lives eight houses away from me around the corner. The first 10 years of my career, um, I worked with a couple of people from Rice uh, some that went to school with me, some that went before me. Um, but I would also tell you that it's not just your classmates, it's the faculty, at least at Rice. The faculty are um, an incredible attribute. It's part, you know, you, you pay uh, your tuition, but you walk away with a Rolodex of people that really want to see you succeed. The first 10 years of my life, off and on, I was on the trading floor. I literally, no kidding, had on speed dial my futures and op options professor and my risk management and finance professor wow. on my phone. And, um, you know, being able to reach out to people who can step out of the uh, fray of whatever I'm trying to do and think about it and actually want to help me um, was an incredible part uh, of the experience. And so if you want to go to business school to check a box so that you can go do something else, well, then there's there's other things you could do on the web or whatever um, that doesn't involve business school. If you really want to expand your network and open your mind and develop friends and acquaintances and colleagues that will affect your career forever, then take the time off and go to business school and do it for real. Um, it was a great decision and it worked out, you know, obviously for me. Rob Goddett, we thank you so much for joining us on I'll Have You Know. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. This has been I'll Have You Know. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it and let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, David Drugliever, and Christine Dobbin.